Welcome to the Global Fluency Podcast. This is a space we've created to explore the components of diversity, inclusion, and cultural competency. Cultural competency. And all of the ways in which these components present themselves in our professional and personal lives. Be it language, culture, socioeconomic class, gender, race, ability level, age, or so many other identifiers. Everything begins with a conversation. conversation. Join us in this space where we seek to empower, educate, and uplift by creating authentic conversations on issues that affect us every day in every way. We look forward to you joining us in our discussions with everyone from thought leaders, diversity and inclusion strategists, students to CEOs in the corporate, education, and nonprofit sectors. Let's discuss how we can better understand differences and leverage commonalities. Let's do away with political correctness, explore ideation, build community, and create allies. Let's start an authentic conversation. This is the Global Fluency Podcast, and this is Bertine Crevacore West. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Global Fluency Podcast. My name is Bertine Crevacore West, and I am delighted to be your host today. I have with me a very special guest, Stacey McClam. Stacey, can you say hello to all of our listeners? Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be here today. We're so glad to have you today. Now, tell us, um, where are you joining us from today? I'm uh, in Los Angeles County. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so Los Angeles County. I hope the weather is decent. <laughs> it is. It's nice. It's always it's nice out there, it seems. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm so happy to have you here. So I'm going to tell our listeners a bit about you. So everyone, Stacy is an educator, author, and filmmaker. She's the founder of School Dismissed LLC, a company that bridges education, film, and law. She has 10 years of elementary teaching experience and has taught across the United States and abroad. Stacey was the host of Teacher Talks on the Tribe Family Channel for three seasons. In 2018, she resigned from the teaching profession and wrote a book entitled School Dismissed, Walking Away from Teaching, where she describes why she left the teaching profession. As a teacher turned filmmaker, Stacey uses her law degree to inform her education-related films. She seeks to expose people to the realities that occur inside schools through film. Stacey's currently directing and producing a documentary entitled Rob, A Mother's Peril, the Kelly Williams Bolar story. And just to give you guys a bit of background, Kelly Williams Bolar was born on July 15, 1970, and is a native of Akron, Ohio. And as a single mother, she made national headlines in 2011 when she was arrested and served 10 days in jail for sending her two daughters outside of their designated school district in Akron. Kelly's actions were inspired to expand the educational and social opportunities for her children that the existing school could probably not provide. So Stacy, I just want to welcome you to the Global Fluency Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. And I also want to acknowledge that we are both co-authors of a book together. We were included in an anthology called Courageous Enough to Lead. And that was thankfully uh, due to the efforts of visionary Dr. Cheryl Wood. So shout out to Dr. Cheryl Wood and shout out to everyone else that was a part of that anthology. Um, for, there were 47 of us in total. So shout out to the 45 other women involved in the project. This is where we met. So I'm delighted that we could touch base here and talk about your film and just everything that you've been up to. And I should mention our book was a number one Amazon bestseller. 
So everybody out there listening, if you thought the book was great, wait till you see Stacey's movie. I'm just putting that out there for you. I'm excited to see it as well. So welcome, welcome once again to the Global Fluency Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I when I saw your, your post, because um, we are connected on LinkedIn, and when I'd seen your post about the film, I just, I remembered that actual story. And I was just like, that is incredible that you're making a film about that. But even before we talk about the film, tell me a bit more about your background, because as I understand it, you studied or you taught in Kuwait and Japan, as well as here in the United States. So I'm so interested and I'm so curious about teacher turned filmmaker. Walk me through that journey. Yes. So it's been an interesting journey. (laughs) I was always interested in education issues and wanted to be a teacher. I think mainly because I was bused to schools outside of my neighborhood starting um, at six years old in first grade. So it really impacted me because I always wondered why I had to get up so early when it was still dark outside and my friends in the neighborhood, you know, were not up that early. And I, I was like, why would my parents have me going to another school when there's a school five minutes away. And my aunt was a teacher and she informed my parents that about um, gifted programs in California, they're called magnet schools. Mm -hmm. And so my parents applied and I was able to go to gifted programs for my entire K-12 career. But the impact in my little six-year-old head was that I just didn't understand why, but I knew that the schools that I went to were better once I got there. And I I saw that the demographics were different. And I just thought that was really interesting. And I grew up in a predominantly Black uh, middle-class neighborhood. So despite it being middle-class, even the test scores still were not as high. So I guess what I'm saying is race doesn't always, or class doesn't always equate to good schools. But anyway, um, my grandmother was a teacher in segregated Virginia, and I really respected her, and I have other educators in my family. So I always held teachers on a pedestal because my mom would tell me when she was younger, when I was younger, that people in their community, when she was growing up, respected their family just for the simple fact that her mother was a teacher. So in my mind, I thought teachers were change makers and just really excited to teach. So I had my own educational issues uh, that I faced uh, in high school where a counselor discouraged me and uh, left negative messages on my parents' answering machine. And I was not allowed to take AP classes, advanced placement classes, even though my mom went to the school. So once I saw these issues, I thought, this is another reason why I want to be a teacher. So then I started teaching And things changed (laughs) in terms of me just seeing the realities and teachers not getting the help that they need and just not getting services for students. And it was frustrating. So after 10 years, I uh, decided to resign in 2018 and I wrote a book about it. And yeah, I mean, I started teaching in Washington, D.C. So I have that experience at also Denver and Los Angeles County. And it's the same issue across the United States. Wow. Your story resonates deeply with me and it's encouraging and depressing, but (laughs) not because it's your story, but because it's a story of so many people, right? I have to say, I, there, there are so many things I want to unpack from that because I feel like as you were speaking, I saw it happening in a film, right? Through my mind's eye. 
So first being bused from school to school, I completely understand that um, later on in my in my school career. In high school, I remembered having to take three buses to get to the high school that I wanted to go to, um, the high school with, with more opportunities as opposed to the one that we were zoned for. Right. Um, and we we grew up in in a middle class neighborhood as well. I would say lower to middle class neighborhood, lower income to middle class neighborhood. And I remember thinking to myself, why do I have to take three buses? Right. And there were about um, three of us, three or four of us in my entire neighborhood that took the same three buses where all of our other you know, counterparts, um, our, our peers um, went to the zoned high schools, the ones that were much closer. And you can, and, and even now, when you, when you see where everybody's life trajectory has taken them, I, I dare say that's a part of the reason, right? Um, because of where we got to go in high school. So that's why when you said middle class, middle class neighborhoods and race, like it, it doesn't have to do so much with race sometimes as it does with access, right? Because when you go to a different school that has, you know, computers, you know, some kids don't have any computers in their school, which is mind boggling to me, whereas other schools, they've got the latest technology. So then you can have something like science club, like tech this and chess club that and, you know, all of these extracurriculars that, you know, by sheer virtue of location, another school would simply not only not have, but never even have access to anywhere in that neighborhood. And it doesn't mean the neighborhoods are bad. It doesn't mean anything except that there's a lack of access, right? Definitely, definitely. Yes. And uh, well, like you're saying, some schools, you mentioned science clubs, some schools don't even have a science club. And just the quality of, let's say, the yearbooks, you know, some schools and, and the yearbook is not, you know, a number one priority, but it's it shows school morale, school pride, school community. My neighborhood school had a little thin paper yearbook. I remember seeing it. And then my the school that I attended was, you know, a hard bound, nice, thick, shiny yearbook. So just little things like that. But it, it if you're a child and if you're an adult working at the school, it, it you might feel a certain type of way based on what you see presented in front of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I dare say that morale, that that gets carried over, I think, into college. It gets if there is college, right? And then it gets carried over into the workplace. Where do you it's it's always interesting for me to see where people end up in life, right? And and I always feel like there's a there's just a straight line from school to, you know, where you are right now to your your elementary school to where you are in life right now. And especially I think, you know, when we're talking about children growing up in different neighborhoods. And and here I will inject race into the conversation um, because the way that I think the school system is set up, um, there is a prison to school pipeline that is set up. And I think that, you know, based on what I've seen, minority children from underrepresented neighborhoods get treated so much more harshly than other kids and for infractions that are are not as severe. And I guess this this relates directly to the film. Right. So tell me a little bit about first what when you decided to leave, because I'm jumping ahead of myself because there's so much I want to ask you. So when you decided to leave the teaching profession, what was the moment? Do you remember what the moment was where you were like, this is not going to to be what I thought it was going to be or I need to find a different path? What was your thought processes? Yes. So it actually 
it was building over the years where I was just not happy in that I wasn't feeling fulfilled. And uh, I was doing my best as a teacher and people would say, oh, you're a great teacher. And they would say that to other teachers, but I knew we felt powerless and that even though we were doing our best, we knew that we could do better and we felt the kids deserved more, but we couldn't give, we couldn't do more based on uh, just systemic issues that were outside of our control. So I wrote about it in my book where a one of, I taught first grade mostly, um, but throughout my career, I had first grade through fourth grade. And I taught at some very um, schools that had a needed improvement in a lot of areas. And so this student in particular, a first grader, attempted to fight me. And it wasn't that I was scared of the student. It wasn't that I was just didn't understand where he was coming from. It just, it's at that moment I was, because that never happened to me before. What is going through the child's head or what is this environment? How is it so uncomfortable for him that he's going to attempt to fight me when I'm the one trying to help him? And so I just felt like this is distorted. This is wrong. This environment is not healthy for kids. Even if they come to school with trauma, many times children can be re-traumatized at school because of the negative conditions at the school. And that's what happens a lot also because if school should be fun. And if school, if students, um, if the environment is positive, those entire school environment, kids aren't going to be fighting Mm because there's no reason to. People want to be happy. So it's only when the school has these um, issues that they aren't being held accountable to and they let slide that these types of issues with students flourish. So at that point, I started crying, never cried (laughs) in front of a class at all. And it was just tears of like frustration. And yeah. I'm honestly blown away that a first grader would even, and I understand that they're little, Right. As a parent, I understand they're not working with, you know, adult rationale, but that a first grader would want to physically fight his teacher. I mean, from a cultural perspective, too, that goes against everything that I've ever known because my mom was a French teacher um, in Haiti a long time ago before she came to the United States. And and so teachers were revered and still are revered there. And so seeing, and uh, several of my friends here are teachers, and seeing how teachers are shown such a lack of respect, is, it's honestly, it's still astounding to me. As somebody that was born and raised here, I still can't wrap my mind around that because I just, I don't understand how that, that is a thing. But then when we talk about kids that are, are coming from environments that where trauma is a part of their daily routine, all I can think of is that's when it's time for us to be empathetic, right? Which is, sounds to me like that's what you were doing. You were trying to understand why this child is just being combative with an adult that's trying to provide them assistance, right? And I, I just, that always, it makes me sad because I feel like we let them down somehow and, and we, I mean, a society. And, and that means that we let teachers down as well. Is I've heard the, the stories of teachers having to purchase, you know, school supplies when they already are not compensated nearly enough. Like I have one child and, and I can't even imagine being a teacher having 18 to 35 students in a class. I mean, that alone, that's like having 35 kids every day that you have to take care of. And admittedly, teachers spend more time with students than most parents do. 
you know, so I would hope that there are changes that are going to come about. But but even before we talk about those things, give me an example of a systemic issue that that was something that you encountered frequently. Yes. So um, there are many. (laughs) But uh, well, one that I experienced myself is uh, tracking. And um, that's where students types of ways students are tracked. And I do understand as a teacher, some, you know, students are at varying levels and teachers have to differentiate their instruction. But sometimes, uh, for example, in elementary school, you'll have different reading groups and you'll have the so-called slow readers and then the higher, more advanced readers. But the goal should be the ones who are um, slower readers to actually progress and not stay, you know, at a low level where they can't decode words. And but that doesn't always happen. And systems aren't in place to actually help students move. Mm-hmm. And so at the high school level and middle school, you'll have tracking where there's just arbitrary cherry rules set where students are placed in honors classes or AP classes, advanced placement classes with like, how did they get there? And the school that I was at was 3000 students, mostly black and Latinx students. But in the advanced placement classes and honors classes were majority white and Asian students. Mm -hmm. And so how does that happen? For me, at my school, you needed a letter of recommendation from your 11th grade or 10th grade English teacher to be an AP uh, English. And so my uh, teacher did not recommend me and grades were good. And my mom went to the school and still I could not get into an advanced placement class. So it's those kind of rules. It's like, why not? Why can't I be? Like that is beyond me. I Because I went to school that was what you're describing, where I I was in AP classes. Almost all of them were AP classes by, um, except for math, um, <laughs> by my senior year. And it, when you looked at the demographic, the, the high school I went to was predominantly um, Asian. Yeah, it was predominantly Asian, Italian, and Jewish. Right. So um, Asian kids, white kids, and there were sprinkles of black kids, but and Latinx kids, but they were mostly in the dance program. And I always used to think, like, why are so many in the dance? Because it was a clear demarcation. Right. It was a clear separation. And I always used to ask myself, you know, how come there are so few black students? Um, in the class, because we stuck out. I used to refer to myself as a chocolate chip in milk, because that's how you could you could just see. And that I recall a particular incident where um, one of my teachers, because we also didn't have um, a lot of representation uh, from the teachers' perspectives, right? Um, so there were very few. I do not remember having a black woman teacher in high school at all. Right. And that to me is is very disappointing because it would have been nice to see. But I don't even I had one Latinx teacher that I can remember. And so, you know, one particular teacher, he he decided one day for whatever reason to go on a rant about how he does not believe um, in interracial relationships. Now, why you would want to do this in front of a bunch of high schoolers? Don't know. But I was the only person in the class that have my color skin, right? And one of my my friends, um, she is also Haitian um, and she's Haitian Jamaican, but she looks Asian. And so, you know, but everybody's looking at me and then another friend who's biracial, who's Korean and white. 
And so they're, they're kind of staring at the three of us and I'm the only one with my color skin. And he's talking about black people and he's looking at me and I am a child. Right. And I just thought to myself, this can't be okay. This can't be okay. And, you know, um, some kids in the class, like one of them started crying. The other ones were kind of, we were all just shell-shocked. Like, what is he talking about? And why is this? This was not a topic of class discussion, but he was giving us his, his opinion. And that was really scarring for so many of us for different reasons that day. Either you were hurt by it, like myself and my two friends, or your friends were hurt by it like the rest of the class. And, and I just thought, who's protecting us, right? Because when teachers do something like this, it's, it's harmful. It truly is. And I just thought, there's no advocate for us in the classroom. How does this person get hired? But even so, he felt that he could say that because there was, there was nobody there to stop him, right? And that I was only one of like two other Black kids, well, one other Black kid in the class, right? And one kid who was Asian and white. Like there was just the three of us. And so he felt that he could do that. And I just thought that was, that was bonkers to me. All of the education that I have just slipped out the window because that's all you can think. This is crazy. And then as you get older and and you're in college and you see more representation of teachers, um, I think that makes such a difference. I have only had one black male teacher in my life. And that was a French teacher who also happened to be from Haiti at that same school. He was the only one. And I thought, oh, he's like a student, (laughs) you know? So when you were saying that, you know, you needed recommendations, I mean, that to me is so appalling, but it's also so real because I wondered why so many of my friends, you know, that, that were in dance were not in AP. And what was interesting to me was that when people saw me that I would just meet at school, they'd ask me if I was in the dance program. They just made the assumption that I was in the dance program. And I was like, I can't dance. <laughs> like, why do you think I can dance? Just because I am a Black student that goes to the school, you know? And so there's the flip side of that. Now we would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor. Westbridge Solutions is a professional training company focusing on diversity, inclusion, cultural competence, and soft skills trainings. Westbridge Solutions offers a variety of innovative training courses, both in-person and online, live and self-paced. Their clients include corporations, government organizations, healthcare organizations, the nonprofit sector, universities, and individuals such as yourself. Through their rigorous training programs, trainees learn to understand differences, leverage commonalities, and achieve organizational, professional, and personal actualization. To learn more about Westbridge Solutions, please feel free to visit their website at www.westgrouptraining.com or follow them on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Westbridge Solutions, empowering professionals for success. So I guess what I want to ask is, how then did you decide you wanted to make a difference with with other people in the world. If it wasn't going to be at school, right? What what was your thought? What was your thought when you were like, this is the last day, I'm done? Right. Well, um, I didn't resign until the end of the school year. But in between my teaching career, I went to law school because I thought I could use the law for education mm-hmm. justice reasons. And then after graduating, um, for me personally, I just felt like the law was too slow and I couldn't 
figure out how to use it in the way that I wanted to use it. So I went back to the classroom for eight more years. But it was at after resigning from teaching, I realized I wanted to combine education, film and law. And so the film part is to expose it because people need to see it. So it's good to talk about it, but people can't actually imagine it sometimes unless they see it. So for example, with uh, George Floyd and police brutality, people could see how that was morally wrong. And then that leads to accountability, like just a public outcry. But if you don't see what's wrong with tracking in schools, for example, and it doesn't affect you, then there's no reason to care because, you know, why you don't know, it doesn't affect you in your life, but it affects many other people's lives. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to expose it through film and with the hope that that will change or impact public policy and laws. Oh, I love that. I love that so much because especially that you are a, a person of color who's also a woman who's a filmmaker and you, I think it's, you know, serendipitous that you took all of these things, these, these education component, this law component, you know, and this filmmaking platform and put that all together because I, I do agree this is the best way, I think, for people to to empathize with somebody else's story that, that's not necessarily their story and that they otherwise would have no exposure to. You know, um, I liken it to an extent um, to what we're evolving through now with this pandemic. Um, there is a, a population of our country that simply does not believe it's a real thing because they've not been affected by it or they don't know anyone that's been affected by it. So, you know, again, to go back to George Floyd, had I not seen that, I would have believed it because that is a reality that exists in this country. But seeing that had a different type of impact on me, right? Because once you see that, you can't unsee it. And, and that means you can't unknow it, right? And, and a lot of times we want to just, you know, especially I think um, as Black people in the United States, you have to live in a in a certain kind of duality where you're just like, these things happen and yet I still have to go to work and deal with the rigors of my job, right? Um, and all the stressors that brings. But then, you know, when you see something like this, I think it, it does serve as a call to action, you know, which is why I was also excited that you're putting out a film that's going to talk about this very story in it, with this particular um, woman, because I think that this is a lot of parents this is so many parents that even in New York that you know, you know, or that we we knew in the neighborhood, like somebody's kid went to a school way far away, you know, where they had to wake up very early in the morning or or they couldn't even take a bus. They had to be driven to school, right? That's in another county somewhere. And so why is that? And and this to me, I just thought to myself, the, the level of punishment too that was doled out. I recall reading on your site that um, Governor Kasich's comments, he was saying that the punishment, you know, was was far more, was too excessive, you know, for the quote unquote crime that was committed. So can you talk to me about just um, Kelly Williams Bullard and, and how you, like, what about her story inspired you to make a film about it? Well, I was on a show uh, about two years ago as a guest and Kelly um, was on the show as well. So I was able to talk to her twice on that show. And then I think one time she, she was on my show called Teacher Talks that I had. And so I was able to interview her then. But also I remember when the story happened, I just thought that that was 
I just wanted to hear more about the story because the media portrayed one side of the story. And I know that there's always two sides. So I was curious what she had to say. And I, I never really got that in the media. And so while I was in law school, I wrote an article in the newspaper, uh, the law school newspaper, because I saw an ad, so ad on Craigslist where a mother uh, was requesting to use someone's address and pay them $50 a month to uh, so her to go to a better school. It was just on the other side of a major street in Denver, but that major street divided to school districts, a good school district and a bad school district. And so Kelly used her parents' address, but it was the same zip code, just a different school district. And it, her parents lived five minutes away. So it wasn't even like it was far away. And she wasn't intentionally trying to steal an education. She wasn't even going to enroll her kids. It wasn't until her house was burglarized, that she wanted her kids to be in a, a safe environment after school. She was a teacher's assistant and still is. Uh, she was going to college to become a teacher. And uh, so she worked during the day and then went to school at the university at night. And so she just thought, if the kids are with my parents, that's a safe environment rather than them coming home. Yeah. You know, so people, that part wasn't portrayed in the media that it was burglary. There was an incident that happened. And so how does the law treat cultural biases? So technically, yeah, on paper, I guess she did break the law, even though she did live both places. And that's another cultural bias because many, um, I know in particular, uh, Black African-American grandparents help in the raising of their kids, Mm -hmm. uh, of the grandkids, where the kids actually do live both places. And Kelly's kids had rooms at the grandparents' house. Kelly paid some bills over there. She had a room over there. So in her mind, I have two houses. Right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I even, I'll, I dare say that extends beyond um, African-American and Black families, right? Yeah, um, that's true. That so much with um, Asian families, with Jewish families, with, with so many different families, with Latinx families, because the family raises the child, right? right. Uh, in my own family, I... I was born here, but I left when I was two months old because my parents were working and my grandparents raised me uh, back in Haiti. And I came back to the States when I was two and a half years old. So for me, I was an American who didn't speak English till I was five because English was not a part of my world, even though born bred here, right? So I, I do agree. I think there, there's a level of cultural confidence that that both the law and the education system need to become aware of because I think then you know, plights like Kelly's, you know, I don't know if they can be avoided because those are systemic changes that have to be made, I guess, on an administrative side, right? But with regard to cultural competence, I think people won't be, well, the law won't be prone to just a blanket decision about these things without giving it some more thought and and inquiring more about the particulars of a situation, right? And I would hope that, you know, I think and this is why I think cultural confidence is so important. Um, it opens the door for us to asking more questions, right? Um, because when we just assume that our culture, whatever that may be, is the right way to do something and it becomes the dominant, you know, perception, um, that's actually based in, you know, a lack of reality, right? And so we're not going to treat people um, truly in an equitable fashion if we don't like have open eyes and clear and accurate conversation about what this particularly means. Mm -hmm. 
So I want you also to talk to me a bit, because um, we were discussing this a little bit. So in light of Kelly and, and what she endured, I found it really interesting um, when we were talking in the green room about stars and, and people in Hollywood. And, and ironically, you are in L.A. County. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, um, and I will I will mention names um, with Lori um, McLaughlin and that story that came about with her and her daughters. and doing essentially the same thing. So how, and I know the easy answer is, well, they're rich, right? But how does that sit with you? And, and, and what does that, how does that even come about, quite honestly? Like, what do you think when you hear that story? Um, it's, it's a bit frustrating. Um, it shows a double standard, obviously. Those, uh, Felicity Huffman as well, and there were, more than 40 people charged in, in that whole case. And it's, um, those were intentional. They were intentionally, you know, breaking the law. And that's another issue that wasn't explored. Kelly did not, in, wasn't intentionally trying to break the law. And Kelly was sentenced to five years, mm-hmm. felony, three, three felony counts with grand theft, stealing an education. And so because of the public outcry, the governor reduced her felonies to misdemeanor. And so she ended up, she was sentenced to 10 days. So she served nine out of 10 days. But those other two uh, women did not have sentences nearly that that five-year mark. Mm -hmm. I believe one was two months and one was 14 days. So that's a big difference. And that's, that's an inequality. Like, it's just basically out there in our faces, you know, and I'm just like, I, for me, I'm actually confused as to why people don't look at these two stories together and say something is not right here, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that that we're able to, again, have two of these things happen and two completely different outcomes. I, I feel like an exploration of that is going, and maybe your film will be something that, that will lead to that, I think where it's going to be viewed in classrooms, it's going to be viewed in law schools, and it's going to be a a source and a topic of of discussion for people to talk about why these two dualities can exist in one country and and how people who don't have access, right, to wealth, to to just whatever means, you know, that that the wealthier people had access to, meaning... um, those group of stars and, and even the ones that weren't famous, why things like that actually do exist in the United States and how we can prevent them from happening to other people. Because at the end of the day, when you look at it, um, if we're looking at the kids, it's not fair to both sets of kids, right? Um, whether we think one is deserving or not, because unfortunately, as, as we were talking about um, earlier, people gain access to things that they did not earn right? That they're not capable of handling. So that to me, when I heard that story, I was thinking, but those kids, not only did they not want to go to college, which they made very clear, um, that could have been an opportunity for another kid that was deserving and wanted to go to college, but also it put them in a position where they were going to have to compete on some level that they were ill-equipped to to do, right? But then you have another parent who has kids that do have the aptitude, do have the desire. And so now they're missing out on an opportunity. So I think when things like this happen, I what I tend to notice is that we focus so much on, you know, the hype around it that we forget to see that 
there are real people involved in these things and, and real life opportunities lost. And, and, you know, some people will be lucky enough, right. And resourceful enough to overcome those, right. But others think about all of the other, you know, Kelly Williams Bullars that we don't know about, right. And who may be right here in plain sight, you know, and, and it's, it's hard. I think it's a shame that, that this is still where we are after all this time. Yes. So tell me a little bit about when you see the film coming out. Yes. So we are hoping to uh, apply to film festivals in 2022 mm-hmm. and then have a release in 2023. Excellent. Excellent. I'm so excited about that. So when the film does come out, I want you to contact us again because we want to be following the success of this project uh, because of I have no doubt that it's going to be successful. And I, I truly mean it when I say I think that this will be used um, as a case study, you know, in, in what can happen. And hopefully it will be used as a resource and a tool to learn how to um, deal with those systemic grievances that we have with the education system and with the legal system. So then tell us where, because I there are so many questions I could ask you, but I know that, you know, this podcast is, is just for a certain amount of time. So Stacey, I want you to, to tell me, um, how has your work overall with diversity and inclusion in, in this space affected your interactions with other people professionally or personally? Well, how has it affected me, yeah. my, my work with other people? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good question. I guess, well, sometimes I feel that I have to do a lot of explaining. And some. Uh, Again, that's why I think the film is necessary because sometimes people, even well-meaning people, just don't understand. They mm-hmm. haven't experienced it. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's definitely important, uh, the DI, DEI work um, that you do and others do. It's necessary because it's just pe- people don't know. They're just not aware. And uh, I wouldn't even say you do DEI work because this film is an exploration of a diverse person's experience and a diverse lifestyle and a diverse pathway. So I'm going to include you in there with us. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Whether you want the title right now or not, you two are a DEI advocate. So you've got that title. (laughs) So let me ask you this. What are two things that you'd like to impart upon our listeners? What do you want them to know? I would like the listeners to uh, to be advocates. I would like uh, them to speak up, even in a small way, if you're a parent, being vocal at your school, uh, being known at your school, uh, being a team uh, member with teachers at your school. And um, I would also want people to try to put yourself in someone else's shoes, empathy, Definitely important because there's a lot that people don't know about Kelly's story. And one thing is that her father was tried with her and he unfortunately passed away in prison uh, on questionable other charges. And so there's a whole backstory to that. But it's just empathy that, you know, a life was lost. Kelly served nine days, but it affected her financially. Um, She can't ever become a teacher. Because of the criminal record, there's a lot of consequences and a lot of family. Her mother was affected. Her kids were affected. So it's not just one person. So empathy, definitely, and advocating. Just just speaking up 
for what you believe. And, and, and when you question things, just speak on it because you're just raising awareness because pe- people don't know. Some people just do not know. So it's not even that it's being argumentative or you're trying to agitate the system. You're just showing something that is kind of hidden to some people. That that makes all the sense in the world. It, you would think it's it's common sense, but it's not, right? Um, this is why I, I love having just guests like you on the show to really um, to educate not only the listeners, but myself, right, on, on what we can do to truly serve as advocates and to, to show us the perspective of a life that may not be ours. Like, I'm not a teacher, but I, I definitely empathize with teachers and hold them in a very high regard. And so I want to make sure that we can shine a light on them, especially during this time right? Where all of a sudden teachers have become super essential. They always have been. And so, you know, for you to talk about um, the parents, the students, the teachers and everything that that you've gone through um, in your own personal life, as well as what you see in the school systems, I think this work is not only admirable, but necessary. And I'm glad you're leading the charge on it, especially with the film of this, this type. I think it's, it's long overdue and I'm so glad that it's going to be coming out soon. Well, thank you so much, Bertine. We're excited. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Now, Stacey, tell everyone where can they get in touch with you? Where can they follow you on social media? Where can they learn more about the film? Sure. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so my website is schooldismissed.com. And the film website is Robbed the Doc, R-O-B-B-E-D, the Doc, D-O-C, dot com. And you can find uh, the film information on all social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Robbed the Doc. And you can sign up for our email list to receive uh, exclusive behind the scenes photos and videos. We have our next film shoot tomorrow in Ohio. So we'll be uh, posting videos and pictures on social media. So check us out. Very cool. Very cool. And for our listeners, we'll also have all of that information for you in the show notes. So stay tuned. Stacey, thank you so much for being our guest today on the Global Fluency Podcast. I've been looking forward to our interview and it's just been a phenomenal experience um, from for me um, having you as a guest, listening to this story. Can't wait until the movie comes out. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Truly appreciate being a guest on your platform. Keep up the good work. It is so impactful and powerful. Thank you. I appreciate you. And to all our listeners out there, I appreciate you as well. Remember, this is your podcast. So reach out to us. Let us know what you think about this episode. Let us know your thoughts. Also, let us know what episodes you'd like to see in the future. And remember, let's keep the conversation going. I'm your host for Team Prepacore West, and we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Global Fluency Podcast. Tune in every second and fourth Tuesday of the month at 10 a.m. for our latest episode. Connect with us on our social media. You can find us on Facebook at Global Fluency Podcast and on Instagram at Westbridge Solutions, LLC. Global Fluency Podcast. Understanding differences. Leveraging commonalities. Let's keep the conversation going, going, going.